the reality of this text and the challenge that we've sort of put before us is this fact that the hope and the promise of the gospel is always lived and proclaimed in a specific culture, in a specific context. In fact, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, which is soon to be upon us as we celebrate that God himself came in the form of a little baby into a specific culture, in a specific context, and even into a specific time which is something that we have to continually remind ourselves of even as we read Scripture and we try to understand Scripture, but the realization that that it's not the gospel is not culturally neutral. It applies specifically in different contexts. There are universal truths that apply in all contexts, but we also have to understand some of the uniquenesses in, in each context. We live in a particular culture as well, particular context. You know that. If you live here in Canada, if you live here in Saskatoon, we... We live in a country of about 34 million people. Uh, We live in a culture, in a country that has a population density of three people per square kilometer. Compare that to Bangladesh, which is a country that has 1,100 people per square kilometer. We have three, okay? We're a lonely people. We have to get together once in a while because we're a long ways away from each other. We have the longest coastline in the world. Did you know that? We have the second largest country in the world geographically. It's 3.8 million square miles. Some of us are a long ways away from the ocean. That's not true of every country. We are when we live here. We have the longest highway in the world. The Trans-Canada Highway is the longest highway in the globe. Okay? We are used to driving long distances. We don't kind of bat an eye at that. In fact, do we? I mean, if we're Canadian people, we know how to drive a long way. I remember growing up with my cousins. We lived in Carrot River. We would drive two hours to Prince Albert to go to McDonald's. We didn't have a McDonald's. We were hungry. I mean, you just did that because we live in a country that you understand that you're going to have to drive distances to get places. You go to Europe and people don't get that. They don't understand that. Everything's really close and the people just like 50 kilometers away are really, really different. So we live in a unique country. We live in a unique context, and I want us to understand that. We have, we have the most donut shops per capita of any country in the world. I have no idea what that means. It's just a fact. So in this series, we've attempted to take a look at the tension of what it means to be the church in a particular context, and specifically to be the church in the Canadian context in an increasingly Uh, a context that is increasingly difficult to live out the gospel and in many ways is antagonistic towards the gospel in one way or another. It's a post-Christian context in so many ways where at one hand or at best, maybe there is indifference and at worst, there is increasing persecution to the gospel message. So we've been pulling out these themes from 1 Peter, from the 1 Peter text, and you, you see them up here behind me in terms of these words that we've been pulling out with each chapter uh, like hope and serve and suffer and respect and live and identity and these, these different themes that have been part of the flow of what we have walked through uh, throughout this series. Last week, Gil, Gil Clausen uh, did a great job speaking on the message of suffering. And that part of how we allow the gospel to have traction in our culture is to realize that we are also a people called to suffer. And it actually shouldn't surprise us. We should expect that in one way or another. Gil talked about the fact that our Canadian and world culture is changing. Evangelical Christians are losing their favor and even credibility in different cultures and definitely in our culture as well. But at the same time, it's not that the sky is falling. 
And we need to understand that as well, too. In fact, Reginald Bibby, uh, on some of the most recent stats on Canada, in fact, this is from March 2015 of this year. And Reginald Bibby is one of the, the lead researchers in the Canadian context on these things. And when he looked at religion in Canada as a whole, in terms of all religion, uh, the stats from March of this year were about 30% of people are embracing faith. About 25% of people in the country of Canada reject faith completely. And then there's about 45% of people of all of Canada, there's sort of this ambivalent middle, this group in the middle that is just sort of indifferent in one way or another. What's interesting is that sometimes we think about, okay, the evangelical Christian world in Canada, that that is shrinking drastically. And yet his statistics show that that is actually not true. In fact, in 1931, evangelical Christians in Canada were about 8%. And in 2009, evangelical Christians in Canada were about 10%. About the same in terms of that number. And so a slight increase. But, but so evangelical Christians is actually kind of staying similar or the same or maybe even a slight increase. And so we need to understand that. But the number of people in that ambivalent middle that are claiming no religion is drastically increasing. So more and more people who have maybe identified with religion in one way or another are increasingly saying, no, we don't identify with any religion. And so that number is actually increasing a fair bit. So these are just some of the things about our context. These are just a few of the statistics and understandings about our context here in Canada. Now, we have uh, many common approaches to culture, and there have been many uh, authors and researchers who have studied this in one form or another uh, about looking at how do we think about our culture? How, as Christians, do we engage with our culture or not engage with our culture? Uh, one of the most well-known ones is Richard Niebuhr's, and I think it was in the 1950s. He had four different typologies that he outlined. I'm not going to go through those, but as you look at people who've reacted to that and written about this in different ways, you might break it down into th- even these three kind of approaches. And we've been talking through and wrestling with that even through First Peter. One approach is just to be against or opposed or antagonistic for those who are believers, towards anything in the culture. That you just sort of reject it and you push against it and you constantly critique it and that anything of the culture must be bad. The other approach that is a common approach is is to just simply withdraw or to remove yourself or to do everything that you can to sort of partition your life off and live in this sort of Christian church bubble and not have the culture touch you in any way. Or maybe a third response, the one listed here, is that you might critically engage in such a way that we are called to transform culture, which I would argue is the position that Peter takes as he's writing in this letter to these people about how is it that you actually engage in culture in a a way that transforms people and places by a people group who are transformed by Jesus Christ themselves. And that's really at the core of it. Are you a people who are transformed by Jesus yourself? So let's have a look at this text, and I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, first of all, just looking at verses 1 to 5. So Peter starts off, he says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, 
but shows favor to the humble. So we see in this text that Peter is primarily talking to leaders in the church. You can't avoid that. He's primarily talking to those who, who lead in the church in one way or another. The term here is elders, a general term that means overseer or, or uh, people who oversee spiritual things in the church. And so when you apply this into our setting here, it would definitely include those who are pastors. And I would say it would also include those who lead on our uh, leadership council. Uh, Clint McDonald is our moderator and those who lead on council. So whether you're paid or unpaid, uh, uh, but a leader in the church in one way or another, it definitely applies to those. So as I read this text, and as I've been processing this text, it becomes even very personal for me. It's a message to me and to those around me and others in the church who identify as elders, as overseers, as leaders. So it at least extends to those in our setting of pastors and council leaders, but I would also say it could extend beyond even that to those who give leadership in different ways and oversight. So Peter is identifying with them as elders, both as a statement of humility for himself, but he's also elevating their ministry and identifying with them. And he says that he himself was a witness to Christ's suffering. And he's saying, it impacted me. I was, I was witness to that myself. I saw the crucifixion. And he also says that we will share in God's glory as well. So Peter is addressing this group of people scattered throughout the region, leading these small churches in these different regions in the Roman Empire and saying, leaders in the church, here's some words for you who lead. If you're a leader in the church, be shepherds of God's flock. Do you remember Peter's last conversation with Jesus in the Gospel of John? John chapter 21, and Peter has just gone through that whole unbelievable time of seeing Christ suffer, Christ crucified on the cross, which he alludes to here in this text. He has gone through that time of actually denying Jesus, just as Jesus predicted that he would do. And feeling the weight of that, of his own denial of his Lord and Savior, and watching him hang on a cross and die for his sins. And then this incredible story of the resurrection of Jesus coming to life again and overcoming death. But then in John chapter 21, you see this account where Peter and the disciples are off on their own and they have not encountered uh, Jesus directly here yet. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Because I'm returning to the, the things that I know, knew and I'm going to go fishing. And him and some of the other disciples do that. They're not catching any fish and all of a sudden somebody comes walking along the shore and we now know that that was Jesus and calls out to them, hey, what about casting your nets on the other side? They do that. And they get a huge catch of fish. In fact, it records 153 large fish. And then they recognize Jesus. Peter jumps to shore. And he has probably the most powerful interaction that he ever had with Jesus. Sitting there around a fire as they ate fish together. He's thinking about the previous days. He's thinking about how he failed Jesus and his denial of him in the preceding days. And then this intimate but challenging conversation that Jesus has with them. And he asks them, uh, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And then he repeats the question. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, then take care of my sheep. 
And then he asks the question again, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter says, in fact, it says, you know, he was hurt by that because he was asked for a third time. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus says, then feed my sheep. I think that encounter with Jesus marked Peter probably more than anything else in his ministry. And I think it's that backdrop and that interaction and that memory that was so uh, seared on Peter's mind that is in his mind now as he is writing this letter to the churches and reminding them of what it means to live by faith. And especially for those who lead in the church, he's, he's now living this out and he's calling them to live this out too. You need to be good shepherds. You need to feed the sheep. You need to care for the lambs. So Peter is identifying with these elders and he's reminding them that their authority in Christian leadership is not about position or title or power, but it's based on humble service. Characteristics of good leadership that he draws out here are this. He says, you know, good leaders are those who realize that they're caring for God's flock, not their own. Good leaders are ones who have and serve or lead out of an eagerness to serve, not out of obligation or because they have to do it. Good leaders are are those who are concerned for what they can give, not for what they can get. Good leaders are those who lead by example and not by force. Good leaders are those who serve because of that crown in heaven one day, not because of the glory of the current position. So he's really saying, saying to them that you need to test the motives of your heart. If you're in any leadership capacity, you need to ask God, what are the motives of your heart? And I can tell you, even in the days preceding this, there's been a lot of time of prayer, of reflecting in God's, and with God and just saying, God, what is the motives of my heart? What am I not seeing? You need to have those times of reflection of just saying, Lord, is there something within me that is not of you that you'd want to show me that I need to repent of and change in leadership and so on? So all of us who lead others in some way, whatever our role of leadership should be in line with these kinds of characteristics. And, and there's all kinds of indirect applications that you could make as parents of children or leading in different places that you serve. But especially for those who lead in the church. You see, here's the, here's the challenge for the sheep. I think the sheep often give challenge to leaders in one of two forms, especially if they go to one of two extremes. And again, when I'm speaking of leaders, I'm speaking of whether it's pastors or lay leaders in whatever capacity. And there are two, two extremes that, that, that people in the church often fall into on one side or the other. And one of them is that you put leaders on such a high pedestal that it's hard for them to actually be humble in leadership, and there's also only one place to go from there, and that is down. So you can err on that side where actually you put leaders on those kinds of pedestals. And we, we see that on a pretty regular basis as you look at sort of the mega church pastors that you read about and hear online and so on and put on such an incredible pedestal and when they fall, they fall hard. And so we err on that side where we put leaders on such a high pedestal that there's no place to go but, but big failure and it's a, a painful crash and burn. Or the other extreme is if the church or the sheep treat elders or leaders so poorly that they begin to wonder whether it's worth it to lead anymore. They burn out, flame out, walk out. And I think what Peter is saying is, is that you need to find a different kind of place in the middle here that isn't this extreme or isn't this extreme. So he's calling the shepherds to lead well, but he's also calling the sheep to be good sheep. And verse 5 speaks to this. It speaks of that mutual submission of one to another, of serve one another. 
And, and this beautiful picture, and we saw that earlier in one of the preceding chapters where it talks about the marriage relationship. And we talked about this idea of mutual submission between husbands and wives. And this beautiful picture that is there of what, what love lo- looks like and how to serve one another as you submit, arrange yourself under another. And I've sometimes reflected on the fact that, that the relationship even that I have with our, our leadership council, and they are the ones that I submit to in their authority. They have complete authority over me. They could gather this afternoon and start in motion the process to get rid of me. I'm thankful that they have that authority. That's a good thing. But an interesting thing, on the same hand, I, on the same hand, I am their pastor, and they submit to spiritual leadership. And you kind of go, well, how does that work? Well, that's part of the beauty of the gospel, is this mutual submission of continually submitting one to another, which is what Peter is calling to and, and, and challenging people to, even here in this text, as he says, serve one another and do it out of humility, uh, all of you who lead in the church in whatever way. So Peter is saying, leadership in the church matters because it's a big deal in terms of how you engage the culture because the culture is watching. And too often when the people on the outside of the church look at the church and even how they handle their conflicts and how they work with things, oftentimes it's sort of like a a circular firing squad of how we take care of issues with everybody having bullets and lots of carnage. And if that's the picture that the church gives of how leadership is dealt with to the waiting world, then what kind of gospel do we have to tell of this ministry of reconciliation that we are called to? And so Peter is reminding the church and reminding the leaders that that how you lead matters. Lead by example, because it makes a difference of how the gospel gains traction in the culture that you live in. You know, oftentimes, it's not the kind of leaders that our world clamors for. Our world often clamors for and really raises up heroic leaders, charismatic leaders, decisive leaders, charge-forward leaders. That's the kind of leaders that our world wants. And Peter's kind of pointing to a, a different picture. Not that it's not of good, strong leadership, but it's marked with humility and serving others. I find it interesting how in the current writing on leadership that one of the new and emerging fields that's being researched and written about a fair bit in the last five to ten years is this whole idea of servant leadership, as if it's a new idea, that people are discovering in the corporate world that servant leadership actually is a really good way to lead an organization. We see again how the best leadership principles, the best principles are there that are found within Scripture as it's throughout this text and so many other places in Scripture. Jim Collins, uh, who many of you would know, wrote the book called Good to Great in 2011, and he, he talks about a level five leader. And he has level one, two, three, four, and five. And, and the first levels just speak about leaders who are capable, uh, leaders who are contributing team members, competent managers, effective leaders in a number of ways. But then he comes to this level five piece, and he says what really sets those level five leaders apart in a different way is this duality of humility and courage. It's these people who actually are able to walk in humility and have this professional will to move things forward, even in the face of obstacles and opposition. You know, we often say it's, it's hard to kind of acknowledge that you are humble, right? Because as soon as you say that or declare that, you've kind of lost that title. And so you sort of go, okay, well, how is it that we can grow in this? How is it that we can kind of stretch our muscles in humility? And I think what Peter is pointing us to today is this word serve. He says the way that you grow in your humility is you learn to be a servant. 
and you just simply learn to serve others. And when we become a church that has learned to serve one another in love, despite or regardless of position or title or authority, it makes the world around us sit up and take notice and say, that is a serving people. Why is it that they, they serve? Why is it that they are so passionate to serve in our city, in our culture, in, the, in terms of where people need help and so on? So we are called to clothe ourselves, as it says in verse 5, with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves. There's your dress code. It's interesting. I've sometimes had people ask me, you know, about a dress code for our staff and leaders. Do we have one? Yeah, we do. It's right in our staff handbook. Uh, it starts with Colossians 3, the dress code for leaders. And it says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together, all together in perfect harmony. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. That is the most important clothing that our staff can wear. The other stuff really doesn't matter that much. Now, we have a few other guidelines that explain a few more things like avoiding the extremes and dress for modesty and appropriateness and don't wear any Toronto Maple Leaf gear and things like that. But at the core is just this call to humility. At the core is this call to love. And that's what Peter is talking about here. He's saying this love only comes from knowing the gospel of Jesus, experiencing the love of Christ yourself and modeling it for others. That's what you're called to do. Let's read verse 6 to 9 and keep going. 1 Peter 5, 6 to 9. He goes on and he says, again, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So Peter's saying, in part, you know, if you serve out of some of these wrong motives, like if you are actually serving out of obligation, or you're serving because, you know, there's really nothing else you can do, or you're serving because of the money, or because of the power, or prestige, or you're serving in the church because of it is totally wrapped up in your identity, then you know what? The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. These are the very places where the enemy will come into the lives of those leaders and twist and distort and kill and absolutely destroy a leader and destroy a church in the process. As if our leaders don't lead and serve with the right kind of motives, the right kind of heart posture, being transformed in the image of Christ themselves, then then the enemy sees that. The enemy comes in and will take those things and those subtle wrong motives and start to twist and distort and to magnify and to create distraction And conflict and all of these things start to ruin a church. So how do we how do we summarize this text of First Peter and this this series of gospel and culture? How do we not just attack uh, our culture and look at everything that is wrong and evil all the time? How do we not just withdraw and just sort of partition our worlds off so that we don't interact with culture, but how do we actually engage our culture for the sake of the transformation of the gospel? 
I would put our four discipleship steps in front of us as a really appropriate conclusion to this series. And let me just walk through them quickly. These four steps, and we have been talking about them throughout this fall, these four steps of just intentional movements, of a movement in a certain direction that help us understand what does it mean to disciple one another. And also to understand that discipleship just doesn't happen when somebody becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, that even for those that are the furthest away from the gospel, the furthest away from knowing Jesus, that if we can help them take one step towards Jesus and and the curiosity of what is this gospel all about, that we are engaging in discipleship. And I would contend that these four steps that we've been talking about are just pervasive throughout 1 Peter, as we've been looking at throughout this series. And, and the first step that we talked about earlier this fall was create community. This idea that we are called to be a people who create community, but a specific kind of community. First and foremost, a covenant community around the covenant of Jesus Christ, this new covenant, when, when Jesus is there at the Last Supper with his disciples. That we are covenant people, a very unique people who gather in community for a specific thing and around a very unique calling and mission. But also the kind of people who are a community of mutual submission to one another, a a people who love one another radically and and who forgive one another, who keep short accounts with each other, who are intentional to reconcile with each other, that we walk that out in very tangible ways, that we are a very countercultural community and we invite people to join a very different kind of community, hopefully than anything they've ever seen or experienced in the world. That's what the church is called to be. That's what Peter is pointing through throughout this letter as these people are scattered in all these regions around this area where it's so hard, they're suffering, they're facing persecution. He says, you need to be marked by this unique community calling. The second step that we've been talking about is experience and model Jesus' love. Already talked about that quite a bit today, just this idea that, that we would know and experience the love of Jesus Christ ourselves, especially if you are a leader in the church, for those who lead in the church, that we are have been transformed, are being transformed, and one day will be transformed when Jesus returns. But that we are always in this process of transformation, of encountering the living Christ, that there is a currency, that there's something current about our faith that changes us day to day. How has the gospel transformed you? Because it's only out of that that you can actually model it for other people. It's only out of that that you can live that out in a way that other people look at your life and hopefully see some reflection of Jesus in that. So we're called to to experience and model Jesus' love. I think part of how we do that, even when we engage people in our culture where there's controversy or misunderstanding or very different views on certain things, is that we learn to listen better. We maybe ask better questions. We speak less and listen more. Even the people that we disagree with the most on really important matters really important theological matters, that we actually would love them enough to listen and to understand where they come from, to understand where their pain points are, to understand what they're thinking and how they are understanding something that you're talking about. Because it's only in our listening and it's only in our love for other people that we actually have a platform to speak. We need to love people despite our disagreements because, you see, Christ calls us to a better way. He calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. He calls us to love our enemies. These are more than just good suggestions. These are at the core of the gospel of what Jesus calls us to. Because you see, you can't hate people and reach people at the same time. 
Which is why Jesus calls us to love people deeply, sacrificially, even people that we really disagree with. The third step that we've talked about this fall is, and we see throughout this text, is train one another in obedience. And Peter talks about that right here in chapter 5 extensively, especially when it comes to the young and the old. And he he talks about, I think he has great insights for both young and old here in this text in chapter 5. Pride can keep the older people from understanding and learning from the young, but it can also keep the younger people from listening to and respecting the older. And he says, people, you need to understand that you older people have something to offer that is really valuable. But you also need to understand that you younger people have something to offer that is really valuable. And when you both get that and you both start to listen to one another and respect one another and work together and serve one another, humbly, it makes an incredible difference. It starts to change the church. It starts to change the culture that you're in when they see the generations working together. I think there are, there are few organizations, if you want to call it that, few places that people gather that are as uh, intergenerational, potentially, than the church. Which is why we talk about that a lot and we wrestle with how do we do intergenerational better? We do it okay. Some places really good. Some places we have a ways to go. But it constantly has to be in front of us of how do we honor those who have gone before us and and respect them and listen to that wisdom, the wisdom of the old. But also how do we not suppress the passion of the youth and the young and and also the wisdom that is there and the the new eyes, the childlike eyes that come with this hope-filled faith that we just fan into flame and not squelch that with our realism, right? And so this is what we are called to do and how we are called to be as the church, that we can learn from each other. Peter told both the young and old to be humble, to serve each other. Respect those who are older than you, listen to those who are younger, younger than you, and be humble enough to know that you can learn from others, every one of us. The fourth one is serve others and proclaim the gospel. Hmm. We've been talking about that a little bit, about serving. And this, this fourth step of discipleship, again, is intentionally two things. It's these two things that are held in tension. And oftentimes, we kind of focus in on one of the sides or the other sides. It's all about the social gospel. It's all about, you know, giving to the needs that are those who are needy, those who are hungry, those who need clothing, those who need shelter. And so that's what we need to be all about. Or the other extreme of saying, no, 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 it's all about the salvation of Jesus Christ. We need to be proclaiming the gospel and and telling people of their sins so that they will repent and enter the kingdom. And there's this dichotomy that we make of something that is not there in Scripture. Because as you look in Scripture, it's always both. It's never one or the other. They always go hand in hand. You serve people and proclaim the gospel, and you do them together. And in fact, as you serve people and as you walk with people and as you humbly just kind of come alongside them and meet their needs, you actually gain a platform to proclaim the gospel. And when we proclaim the gospel without a willingness to humble ourselves and serve, we are just this shrill voice condemning people is how it comes across. But when we learn to serve people and serve one another, we now have a platform, in fact, an invitation that people give of an invitation of what is different about you. Why are you serving sacrificially and what is that all about the first gives traction to the second so as i look at this text and i think about what it means to be a good shepherd here's one of the things that i get great encouragement in especially as lead pastor and the privilege of serving in that role is i don't have to be the great shepherd because i'm not because there already is one that's jesus christ 
There is great comfort for me in that. But we are all called to be good under-shepherds. And especially for those who lead in the church, called to serve in a way of being good under-shepherds for the flock. And the sheep are called to be good sheep in terms of those who are called to serve. And then we read in uh, verse 10 to 12, and I want to just finish with this. Where Peter says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. I love those words of Peter as he says to this church that's facing persecution, facing challenges, facing struggles. He says, this is the grace of God. This is the gospel we proclaim. This is the hope that you need to hold on to as we talked about that very first week, the hope of the gospel. He says, you need to stand fast in it. You need to hold on to it. I'm giving testimony to this. It's the call to know the gospel, to be encouraged by the gospel, to be transformed by this gospel, and to proclaim this gospel in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this incredible text written by Peter, one that you loved. What an amazing truth. And Lord, the thing that we love about Peter is that he was such a true human who had all kinds of failures, all kinds of weaknesses, all kinds of things that we can probably identify with. And yet, Lord, how you used him to proclaim the gospel and bring a transformation to churches all around this region of the world. And Lord, I pray for the leaders in our church that you would help us to be those kinds of leaders. God, would you give me strength to be that kind of leader? God, would you reveal to us the things and the places that we need to change and repent of and and reconcile and whatever uh, we need to do to keep short accounts and to walk in truth and in freedom and in grace? And Lord, I pray that together as a church that we would know this gospel in transforming ways and that we would serve one another in love that there would be this mutual submission of the body of Christ to those who lead and to those who follow. And that through that, that the world around us, the culture around us would see a testimony that is real and powerful and life-changing. So Heavenly Father, we pray that you would continue to transform us more and more into this image. By the power of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.